Welcome to Dream Radically Podcast, a series brought to you by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Dream Radically is the need for those passionate about justice and equity to imagine the world they want to see, to envision a place that provides the societal conditions necessary for true justice to be the norm for all people. Join us as we embark on the journey of dreaming radically with community leaders, artists, activists, educators, and more. My name is Miles Francisco, and I'll be your host on this path of imagining. Let's dream. I am joined today by Cynthia Garcia. We talk about immigrant rights and immigrant justice in the current moment. We talk about black and brown solidarity and unity. And we talk about pushing for an abolitionist future in relation to detention, in relation to policing, and in relation to the prison industrial complex. Let's get into this convo. Cynthia Garcia is an undocumented queer woman living in Oklahoma as a community organizer. Currently, she leads the national campaigns for community protection with United We Dream, the largest immigrant youth-led org in the country. Welcome, Cynthia, to the podcast. How you doing today? Hi, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Definitely, definitely. Um, so my first sort of question for you is just want to uh, let the people uh, know what you do. Tell us about your work, um, what brought you here, and what you've been up to lately. Yeah, so, you know, as you shared, my name is Cynthia Garcia. I'm undocumented, unafraid, queer, and unashamed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get the privilege and really the honor to work as a community organizer right now virtually from Oklahoma, Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. And I get to work on what is our national campaigns for the organization United We Dream, which is a pro-immigrant rights org, youth-led, particularly in the community protection, which comes around battling enforcement, the way that agencies like ICE, CBP, and even the integration of police has the impact on immigrant communities and the criminalization that occurs within our communities through those systems. I originally started doing that work here locally through Dream Action Oklahoma, which is a United We Dream affiliate, and doing deportation defense work, which is something that I fell in love with because it gave power to the people to really fight back the system that, you know, really is separating and disappearing our families into the deportation force. Mm. Obviously, there's, you know, a whole lot of energy right now around defund the police and and the push towards an abolitionist future. So I wonder if you could talk about sort of the connection between ICE and when people think about the police, who they're thinking about and sort of how they're one and the same as tools to harm and inflict violence and deport our people. Yeah, no, totally. I think that one of the biggest misconceptions around the abolish ICE is that we're just talking about ICE as an agency, right? I think that there is so much more depth into that. Mm. And the depth really comes on the intersection of racial profiling and policing that comes from any form of policing. And so ICE, it's born out of racism and xenophobia and this ideology of removing those not worthy of being in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and this comes at the expense of decades and honestly, frankly, since the birth of this country of just erasing communities as a whole. And mm-hmm. so I think that one of the really rich conversations around the abolishment of eyes and that abolition lenses, reimagining what community safety truly is, thinking about the birth of eyes after 9-11 
and how politics really play a role, right? And how immigrants really begin to be the ones to blame around the homeland security. This whole framework of we have to build walls and we have to protect ourselves from the foreign people really is rooted in racism and xenophobia. And so being able to point that and also look at the mirror and see how policing in this country as a whole, it's at the birth of that. I think really when we talked about abolishment of ICE, we talk about community safety at the core of it, being led by community and not by agencies that are upholding white supremacist views. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's a super key point for people to understand, because often when you think of institutions of policing, you think that it's a fixed category and that, you know, they've been here time immemorial, um, that they've been here since the, the founding of this country. When in reality, like ICE is literally a brand new agency. And I think you hit on a key point of a part of the the theory and the battle for abolition, for the abolition of the prison industrial complex is reimagining like what safety looks like and what community looks like sand police prisons and institutions and systems of surveillance. So for you, particularly from the lens of, of justice for the immigrant for what this country would label as a foreigner or other, what does that look like? What does that community safety look like in a world without an ICE or or uh, local police unions or what have you? Yeah, and this is such an interesting question, frankly, because I think that to be able to talk about the abolition of the industrial complex, right, on, on the prison connection, you know, we talk about the school to prison pipeline, but we also have to think about the prison to deportation pipeline that has been extended over the last decade, if not more. It really comes back to like three out of four people who are deported in this country have contact with law enforcement at one point. Hmm. That means that 75% of the folks that are deported, their first initial contact wasn't with this agency, such as ICE or CBP. It was actually with local law enforcement. And that can look like for something as simple as a traffic violation, or it can look like someone who's harming someone, because we know for a fact that our communities are not invested in. We don't have the resources we need, but we sure as hell have the over-policing that will make sure that at any given day, you're at a higher risk of actually being detained and deported. And so when I think of also how we have benefited as immigrants from this good immigrant narrative, I talk about that. And even mm. as a dreamer narrative, it was a frankly a lesson learned for myself. You know, when I'm a DACA recipient and I was able to get DACA because the qualifications on DACA was like, you should not have any criminal record. And that really drove a wedge on who's worthy of protection from deportation, right? And to be able to acknowledge that immigrants have lived in this really comfortable spot where as long as you're good, as long as you don't mess up, that you can fight for justice. It created this really dark hole where the rest of our community who don't fit this narrative were being extracted and ripped away from us. And we were excusing it mm -hmm. because they were not the good people, because they were the criminals, because they were the ones that are harming our community. Without the deep acknowledgement of like how intentionally policing takes part in our communities, particularly black and brown bodies, but 
also that the resources, even though we are part of community, right, and we're funding all these agencies, are used against us rather than for us. And so I think about policing. Uh, one of my very first experiences was being pulled over because the cop couldn't see my taillight. And at the time, I didn't have DACA. I was fully undocumented. Mm. And I remember getting tickets, tickets for no license, tickets because the car wasn't under my name, tickets because he couldn't see my tag. I guarantee you that I spent over $3,000 worth in citations. Mm. And I thought to myself, what's the good here? Where does this traffic stop make the community safe? Where did it make me safer? Mm -hmm. I can tell you that my experience with that particular police officer was like, you're lucky I can drag you out of your car and take you to county so the ICE can pick you up. And I think that people find it really easy to separate themselves when they haven't experienced that. But once mm -hmm. you're able to really see it, it's very clear that we are money signs and this pipeline of just milking people for money. And that that money never really comes back to us in like mental health or like community centers or, you know, free education and healthcare. No, that comes back with more police officers, mm -hmm. more ICE enforcement collaboration. And it's such a deep intertwined concept that we have to stop thinking it's normal that the first person that comes back to the scene with someone has been assaulted, with someone has been harmed as a police officer. Mm -hmm. Because what is the point if, if you've been hurt what is a police officer really going to do? Why is there not a social worker? Why is there not a health provider? Why is not a mental health specialist? Mm -hmm. And he gets there to the core of all other issues that comes with not funding our community. Mm -hmm. Because someone doesn't just go and steal whatever from Walmart or steal whatever from a grocery store. There is needs that are not being met in our community where people have to take action to meet them themselves. Mm -hmm. We're being normalized to think that like, because you did something then all of a sudden that erases your humanity. And that's the system at work every day. Yeah, no, that's great. I think you laid out beautifully sort of the the argument for defund the police, but also the abolishment of these systems and also the various institutions, state agencies and the like that benefit from and work in conjunction with the police and the prison system and how easily people in general, but particularly black and brown people, indigenous people are labeled criminal and how once labeled criminal, their entire humanity is stripped from them. So much of it is just about resources. And this is what defund the police is about, right? You're giving this institution that inflicts violence upon our communities, hundreds of millions of dollars, but you're not giving us food. You're not giving us housing. You're not giving us healthcare. You're not giving us the basic necessities that all humans should have. So what would happen if we began to fund those institutions, those structures properly? And the reality is, and it's a sinister outlook, but it's the reality of the formation and the increase of the prison industrial complex in this country is that we have all of these social problems that our government acknowledges are social problems. And rather than responding to them in a humane way, in a way that actually addresses the root causes of them, white supremacy and capitalism, we just throw it into the prison system. We give more money to the police, you handle it, right? So we have a problem with poverty. We have a problem with homelessness. Well, let's begin to criminalize homelessness and throw people into jails, into prisons, right? 
So we're literally, we're not disappearing the social problems, right? And this is what Angela Davis talks about. The prison doesn't disappear these social problems, but it's disappearing human beings and pushing them away from us. But none of it is going to go away until we actually address these things. And that's not going to happen while these institutions are still here thriving and, and getting more and more funding year in and year out. Yeah. And I think that the only thing I will build on to that is that we've normalized that response because we also systemically have been pitted against each other. Mm-hmm. Who's able to pull their own weight? Who's able to thrive beyond all this, like, you know, things that are against you. Mm-hmm. And that is how people are able to see that you not being able to provide housing or food or comfort for your family, it's a failure of a person and not of a system. Mm-hmm. And with that, it comes, you know, I think of Oklahoma City, such as city that is literally on the rise and, you know, quote me on it, but will be a futuristic city coming up really soon. Mm-hmm. But with that has been the growing pains of a city, right? The the increase of lack of resources, the gentrifications of our communities, our people not being able to afford rent anymore mm-hmm. because they're being pushed out. And somehow it's their fault that we've accommodated to the tech companies that are coming in and buying out lots. And, you know, I think of house rentals and how you're paying for amenities. Mm-hmm. But the way that you make it accessible is through hiking up the rent to where low-income families or medium-income families are unable to really live anywhere there. Mm-hmm. And so then you continue to push them out, right? I think one thing that particularly harms immigrants is we are deemed essential just about everywhere. I think COVID-19 really put that in perspective of how many immigrants are actually part of the workforce, whether they're documented or undocumented. And yet we continue to be left out of COVID relief because we are disposable bodies. Mm-hmm. We are at the fabric of the COVID relief response. But when it comes to actually taking care of our people, we're not a priority mm-hmm. because of a social security number that it's unattainable, right? And we hear about this whole thing about do it the right way. And meanwhile, we've seen the Trump administration really shred to crumbles the immigration system. Mm-hmm. And so you want us to, against all odds, continue to thrive. And it's sinister, as you said. Yeah. And I think this touches on something you said before is this idea of the dreamer, right? And that there was this push uh, during the Obama administration. This also ties into sort of the complicity and even the ways that liberal actors are the main forces for many of these things is that, you know, when you're pushing for the DACA reform, it's, uh, well, look at these innocent kids who came here as babies and are now in college or in school. And I I think about this um, recently with international students who were in college. Um, and the big sort of push against these things, the, the pushback was that, you know, these kids are in school and they're providing all of this funding, right, for the schools and for the universities. And that the only worthiness, like you said, for immigrants, for international students, for dreamers, is their ability to produce capital for our economic system. And beyond that, they don't matter to us, right? So the only reason you sh- these people should be able to stay in our country, our country, is their ability to produce capital. No, totally. And we see that every day. I think one of the key moments that I want to highlight, this is not new. I think you bring up also another point that people often (laughs) have a misconception around. You know, the deportation force, as we know it, has always been there, has been there since Mm -hmm. 
since there was someone to be told that they didn't belong here, right? And that comes even from like indigenous people literally being robbed and murdered and erased from their own land. But it also comes from this very conscious decision of basing people's worthiness on production mm-hmm. at the core of it all. And I think of, you know, early in the 1970s, 1980, where the government deported millions of people within a year, over 2 million of people, some who were actually U.S. citizens because they were immigrant farm workers, because they were first generation who were still, you know, navigating this whole border concept. People used to be able to travel back and forth through the border. It was more seen as a point of commerce rather than the militarized, weaponized point that it is today. You know, Obama gets a lot of credit for the first action program known as DACA. But also there was a reason why immigrant youth call him the deported in chief. Mm-hmm. And it's very clear that every time we ask for something, and, and that is true to brown, black, and indigenous people, every time we demand anything that gives us back humanity, we have to trade. We have to trade for more police. We have to trade for more ICE agents. We have to trade for more fees and more land back and all these things. And it's also like it's never been good enough to just not want to get hurt by the system. Mm. Like it's always like, I'm not going to hurt you right now, but let me set up the conditions to where 10 years from today, your community will experience what you're bargaining for today. We see that right now. The whole dreamer narrative, the Trump administration literally just read a DACA as it is. And we went over eight years really shielding ourselves in this whole dreamer narrative. And for what? Mm-hmm. We are finding ourselves back at square one. Yeah. And how quickly and easily, right, your entire identity or humanity or protections can be stripped from you just with a a flip of a switch, literally. Yeah, just a signature of one of the most corrupt men in history. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. You know, in your bio, United We Dream is a a, a youth-led organization. So I wanted to ask you sort of about that, like the role of young people in the movement and the push for justice in this country and across the world? Yeah, frankly, I think that the role of young people in changing the world often gets sugar-coated. People talk about it like in just this like, you led and such a buzzword, right? Mm-hmm. But for me, someone who has been organizing now for years, right? I think that the reality is, is that young people don't, don't have a safety net. They are not comfortable <laughs> with what's happening, right? Like Mm -hmm. they are barely at this point where like we have nothing to lose, literally. Mm -hmm. Figuratively, literally, like we are at a point that is like, if you don't give us what we want, we will shut this whole thing down. Mm -hmm. And I think that the beauty of holding that space, not in a container way, but holding it as like uplifting it and continue to build that notion really allows us to dream bigger than what we have asked before. I think of immigration as such a stagnant and stale movement. And yes, it has had its wins and it has had the whole idea of advancing. But I think of undocumented queer, non-binary folks right now who are like, it's not enough to get DACA. Like we want citizenship. And we don't want citizenship that comes with all these budget increases for these agencies because we know what's gonna happen next. And so being able to really allow them to lead that vision and be able to have them tell us what is it that needs to happen 
has been one of the key elements of organizing with United We Dream. And frankly, with any of our affiliates, including Dream Action Oklahoma, there is a very clear organizing model in United We Dream that is like people closest to the pain are closest to the solution. Mm-hmm. And so undocumented young people who are experiencing this agency at the core of their day-to-day lives are the ones that are coming up with the demands, are the ones coming up with the ask. And people play a critical role as allies, but ultimately we're not in the place where we can allow people to keep telling us to just ask for toothbrushes and mm. blankets for people in the detention center. Like we're asking you to shut that shit down. Yeah. And that's the ask, nothing less. And we're not asking for cookies here and there for showing up. Like we're asking for these agencies to cease to exist in the way that they are and to reimagine what is community building, right? Because community building is not just to talk about abolition as like this cookie cutter that is just gonna transform the world. It's to really think of how do we get our people to see safety in the way that we're all part of it. So that when we abolish the system as we know it, we don't reinvent another one just as harmful, if not more. Mm-hmm. I think of INS, which is the Immigration and Naturalization Administration that was back before ICE was. Mm-hmm. And people thought that was bad. Here comes Congress and says, let's create the Department of Homeland Security. Mm-hmm. And we are literally experiencing the impact of a racial cleanse that has basically happened through ICE and CBP. Mm-hmm. And so I think for us, young people have the key and hold the key to reimagine those systems, not maintaining them, but reshaping what our community engagement is. And I'm frankly really excited because he even pushes me to check myself for like, what do I think is possible within the next year, within the next five years? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. And I think young people, they do, they dream radically as good as, if not better than all of us. And it's necessary that all people are are making space for those, like you said, that are closest to the issues, centering them, upholding them, empowering them to have a voice and to speak up and let their needs met. That's absolutely crucial. So in what ways do you see anti-Blackness in the immigrant community surfacing? And, and what are some ways that immigrant justice activists have been trying to combat those things? And, and what is the future for that type of work, that sort of solidarity work? across difference within the immigrant community? Yeah, and that's such a loaded question always because there is never enough work, frankly, around anti-Blackness. And there is never enough work to acknowledge our own biases and, and the way that we show up in the work. I think that particularly for me, it's also been a learning curve because we think about the countries that we come from and where our communities are, right? And like, I think I'm a Mexican citizen and I think of how often did I experience some sort of bias because I'm darker skin or, you know, dark compared to majority of my family who's like semi-white passing. Mm-hmm. And so like we come here and we pretend that that bias doesn't show up in the way that we work, in the way that we organize, in the way that we engage with the rest of the community. And so I think part of our work as like immigrant organizers is to acknowledge that we also have privilege within even this system, right? Like I am able to be like, I'm a DACA recipient and that by default tells people that I have a clean record. Mm. Or I am able to say like, oh, I speak perfect English and therefore like, you know, accent and all, 
mm-hmm. I'm able to communicate. And mm-hmm. so also acknowledging that like immigration purposely has been sold as a Latinx issue or like even as a Mexican issue, right? Like, oh, it's, it's our friends south of the border who are causing all this ruckus. Yeah. And while logistically it is the vast majority of South America and Latinx communities as a whole who are part and particularly targeted by the system, it's mainly Black immigrants who really see the intersection of racism and xenophobia, right? Mm -hmm. Black immigrants being the ones that are detained the longest, Black immigrants seeing the longest amount of time in processing and detention overall, regardless if they're asylum seekers or they're in detention for removal. And Black immigrants being targeted by police in a higher rate than Mm -hmm. white passing Latinx communities. And so being able to call upon each other and say, how do we amplify the voices of Black immigrants without taking away from their lived experience? Because it's not just about being Black. It's about being Black and an immigrant and undocumented and experiencing really everything that the system was built and intended to do at the core of it all, right? And that starts with like conversations around how anti-Blackness shows up in our community, you know, from microaggressions to very like severe ways of erasing completely Black immigrants from the the immigrant rights organizing. Mm -hmm. We talk about how is it that we're able to acknowledge and honor like the civil rights movement and so many of the tactics of Black leaders who the immigrant rights organizing has really taken up Mm -hmm. and adapted as a way of disrupting power and disrupting the system for the benefit of immigrants in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, lastly, doing the internal work. And that's the part that is heavy, right? Because we have to talk to our families and talk about how, like, dating somebody fairer skin than me is not going to better the race and it's not mm-hmm. going to make prettier babies. And, like, all these things that may seem part of the culture, but it's not okay. Ultimately, yeah. being able to address all those things, seeing that the system has really pitted that against us, but, like, there comes a moment where we need to analyze that the systems that we know even in our home countries are classist, are, you know, really grounded on colorism. I think of when I was young and seeing Black Mexicans and I was just like, I only see like five people in my whole town that were Black. And I was just like, what? And then I come to Oklahoma and go to Northeast where I'm one of the seven Mexicans in the whole school where it's over 800 people. And being able to see that flip screen and know like, you know, what are the things that I need to change in my behavior so that that really allows me to build community with people, even if we don't speak the same language, even when we have different cultures. Black and brown unity comes from being able to acknowledge the differences, but also the richness on each other's mm-hmm. backbone of cultural, right? Like so mm-hmm. many of the of the resilience and the joy and core of building community comes from that black and brown unity and also our ability to say like nah this shit is not okay mm-hmm. like we have to fight the system back together because mm-hmm. we know that there's already many things that separate us and it's it's a long game work and it's gonna mm-hmm. take work and it's gonna take also the will to want to unlearn because there's a lot of things to unlearn from mm-hmm. the way that we interact with the world and it's okay to have to unlearn it's just not okay to continue to avoid that yeah. Once you know better, do better, right? 
I think yeah. that's and that's you know that's that's everything. Understanding the ways that these systems of oppression harm all of us in different ways and in very similar ways, and showing up uh, for one another. I think that solidarity work is is everything. Yeah. So you touched on this just briefly, but in in the last episode, we talked about like allyship. So I wonder if you could talk about sort of like what can U.S. citizens do? What does showing up for the immigrant community look like in today's moment? Yeah, I mean, I think one core thing, immigrants should lead the way. Undocumented immigrants at the core of it all. You know, I have been really shaping my brain around this like hyperactive allyship that mm. just like wants to take action all the time, want to take space. And I'm like, chill out. Like yeah. the people who need your support don't even have time to think on what they need before you are over here, like buzzing around like bees. Right. So I think mm. of allow directly impacted people to be the thinking brains of the demands that they make. Mm-hmm. Do not minimize the demands. If I'm telling you the least amount of thing I'm settling for is to abolish the system as a whole, don't tell me that I need blankets and toothbrushes and better conditions at the detention centers because my people know that that's not going to save them, that that's not going to help them, and that that's not going to change the risk that they live every day and the fear that they leave. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, the, the strong home here is like, we know that either party doesn't care about us. Yeah. We know that very little to none of the people who are in power care about us, care about our issues in the way that they're able to actually represent us. Mm. But voting is harm reduction and voting out the administration that has hijacked completely the immigration system is the best way mm-hmm. to continue to allow directly impacted people to lead the work. Because the reality is, I don't know how my community or even myself are going to survive another Trump term. I just don't. Mm. I see the way that UCIS is shredded. I see the way that ICE and CBP are literally, I mean, now snatching people from the streets that Mm. are U.S. citizens. And I'm like, oh, now y'all get it? Because we've been living this for over the last decade and nobody cared. And so being really transparent on what are the intentionalities around allyship and also if it's not led by undocumented immigrants, then it's not the closest to the pain. Yeah. And, you know, you may be a very well-meaning ally, but allowing that space for people to to show up and mm. commit to the ask that immigrants demand you to do. Because sometimes that allyship and that half-sold idea of, like, the betterness of detention centers can actually be harming people mm. who are trying to build up long-term changes. Because those are the people that get invited to the Hill and those are the people that get invited to the elected officials office because you are actively working within the system, a system that people directly impacted do not see as the Mm -hmm. end goal. Yeah. One final question for you, Cynthia. You know, this is Dream Radically podcast. And the the final question I always ask all the guests is, what is your radical dream? What, What is your dream for the world, for society, for this country, for this state, in regards to anything we've talked about today or anything you like? What is that dream? I dream often and most of the time it's awake, which is kind of weird. But I think of just regaining the ability to move. I think of I haven't been able to go home in 
it's now going to be 17 years. And I think everybody should be able to go home, whatever you call home, even if home means a place you've never been to. Mm -hmm. Like having that power and the ownership of reclaiming somewhere mm -hmm. uh, and honoring the land and honoring like the habitants of that land, I think is my radical dream because I understand that the moment that people have that power, it's not going to be about production. It's about really caring for the land and caring for each other in a way that we trust those who are not here and who we don't see as our everyday neighbors. And so mm -hmm. that's one. And then for now, just also dreaming of not having to deal with a global pandemic with such a shitty administration, honestly, yeah. by lived experience at this point. But mm -hmm. that is my radical dream. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Cynthia, for joining me today, for breaking down this conversation, but most importantly, for the work that you do for showing up on the daily for marginalized people. No, thank you. Great conversation. I appreciate it. And also thank you for continuing to build these conversations that are much needed. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Dream Radically podcast presented by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Like and subscribe to this series wherever you get your podcasts. Check out the work of FLM at Foundation for Liberating Minds on all social media platforms or on our website at foundationforliberatingminds.org. Special thanks to The Third Space in Norman, Oklahoma for providing the beautiful space to record this podcast. Be well and may tomorrow bring us closer to our radical dreams. <laughs>